You're listening to Trek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. I am so excited to be here tonight. Uh, we are coming at you live from Mos Eisley's Spaceport Cantina. Forget the music in the background, uh, but we couldn't think of a better watering hole, a more wretched hive of scum and villainy to come at you from, as we are going to be talking about Star Wars Bloodline tonight by Claudia Gray. And before we get into that, just a quick note, of course, you know that you can find the 602 Club on the Trek FM network. You can find us on iTunes.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group. Just type Babel in the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at Trek.fm and click Discussion on any of the menu bars and any of the show pages. We're on Twitter at Trek FM. And, of course, if uh, you'd like to contact us, just go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, and you can send that right to us. And we'd love to hear from you about what you thought about Bloodline. And then we've got the great thing. I just, I love when this happens, when I get a voicemail from a listener. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm, and you can send us a voicemail. I'd love to hear that. And uh, you know what? It, John... What's that thing that people can do on iTunes that helps out the show? Give a rating. Just go ahead and give a rating. Any rating. Yeah. Yeah. A- anyone. Uh, you know, we've got a bunch of ratings there, but it really does help the show grow, especially for the main feed and the Star Wars feed. Give us a star rating and review. It takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and I really appreciate you guys doing that because it just helps more people find the show. Well, as you heard, we've got one of our illustrious members of the Jedi Council back, uh, John Mills. How's it going, man? I, You know what? People should write this down. This is my first appearance on the network ever since Commentary Trek Stars closed its doors. This is my first appearance on Trek FM since then. How y'all doing? I'm wow. glad to be back. I'm happy to be here in the 602 Club. It's good to Club. have you back. Well, it, and it feels good because you're back on a Star Wars episode yes. of the 602 Club. And we broke that streak, but you got right back into it. So it's like, you know, you had that one bad game, but you're coming back. <laughs> uh, you know what? And I'm going to come out swinging today. I promise you that. <laughs> well, and, and we, we, we can't have a great Star Wars show. Everybody knows this. We cannot have a great Star Wars show on the 602 Club without the other amazing Jedi Master, Bruce Gibson. It's so good to have you back, brother. And as always, it's so good to be here. And I just want to say, here's here's an interesting point. This is my first 602 Club since John left Commentary Trek Stars. There you go. It's all coming it together. Wait, no, no. Really? Because we just did Captain America together. Oh, was John still going I on think John Commentary was Trek still Stars? on. I think he was just wrapping it up. Oh, was it? That's. I think mm. you're right. I think it, that y'all you know have just we'll done just, your We'll last say that's episode. the case. We've just yeah, we've we, it, restored balance. Nobody's going to fact check us. It's the <laughs> internet, so whatever we say is gold. There you go. Um, it's all true. Okay, talking about Star Wars Bloodline tonight. I mean, I think when we all read the synopsis of what this book was going to be, we all kind of had in our heads this idea. You know, heir to the Empire. 
that's what kicked off the EU. We, we talked about that last year as we made our way to The Force Awakens to kind of get in that mindset of where we were in 91, thinking about what might come next. And 30 years between Jedi and The Force Awakens left a lot of time to be filled. And so when they finally said that Bloodline was going to start that process in such a big way and, and really delve into just Leia and what was going on politically, I know it sounds weird because everybody seems to hate politics in Star Wars when we talk about the prequels and all, but I, I was totally sold. And so I want to ask you guys, just even coming into the book, what did y'all think? Uh, for me, it's the, the author, Because of Lost Stars. As soon as I knew it was Claudia yeah. Gray doing it, I, that was what sold me. They, they could have set this two days after Return of the Jedi, 29 years after, whatever. I had full faith that she was going to knock it out of the park. Like All they had to do was say she was writing the book. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm on board. But in terms of the subject matter, I mean, how can you not... I, I don't think there's a single fan that doesn't want to know what happened between the movies. I mean, that's that was one of the biggest questions coming out of Force Awakens was like, okay, so how did we get here? So, yeah. I was a little more reserved with my excitement because Claudia Gray in Lost Stars, number one, this was a young adult novel that she wrote. And number two, she had her own characters. It was focused, the main characters were her own creation. So she had more flexibility to build them and create them the way she wanted to. Now she's writing more on an adult novel and she has to use characters that have rules to them they're not her characters so i went in hoping this was going to be really good as good as lost stars but i was a little reserved to see how she was going to pull this one off well uh, one of the big questions that and, and you know the old eu used to do this thing where it was so good about telling you the exact time period that you were in it would give you the cast of characters and it would kind of let you know how far away from A New Hope this was. You know, they would tell you the the amount of years. You know, this is 15 years after A New Hope. Or... So the new canon doesn't do that. So I wanted to ask you guys, as we're talking about this kind of heir to the Empire era, when do you think this book happens? Because there's no specific dates in here, at least that I picked up. I may have missed it. So what do you think, John? Uh, Leia says at one point, 20 years. She said the war okay. was over 20 okay. years ago. But I, I get what you're saying because they did ha they did used to have it listed out, the Dramatis Personae, and they would have everybody listed out. So, you know, it's like Toydarian male and, you know, uh, Twi'lek female and stuff like that. I prefer this approach to make it rely. I think it asks more of the author, and I think it makes the author step up their game to basically force them to say you have to use the actual text of the novel to relay this information uh you know to everybody so uh, i personally i i like the fact that they they make you have to work for it a little bit as opposed to just open up the novel and say oh well i don't care about this time period like you have to jump in and figure it out i like that yeah, I wonder, I, I'm just wondering if they're doing it because they don't want to put themselves in a corner. They want to kind of leave it loose as they're adding more stories in, then they, they'll make it more concrete on the dates. No, I think that's, Bruce, I think that's fantastic and, and exactly kind of what my thought process was because you're right, John, I'm, I, 
I just completely must have missed that 20 year reference. Oh, it's, and that's it's, my it's fault. One, it's one sentence. It's in one time. Like a okay. okay. Page book. But because thinking through the novel, I was thinking, okay, it does feel a little bit nebulous as to, for the most part, when the time period is. And from what you're knowing about, we'll get talk more about this, but what you know about Ben and Luke, that fall hasn't happened yet, which is very interesting as well. And so. That made it seem to me like it was earlier rather than later. And so finding out, you know, hearing 20 years, that seems like, wow, that's only 10 years before The Force Awakens. And what happens with their son must be very recent, it seems like then. And what happens with Snoke and all of that must come pretty much, you know, not too far after this novel. Well, that and that's that's a great point is... You know, as I was going through the book, as I got closer and closer to the end, because, you know, I, I was reading a physical book. So you know, th- I was willing, this should give everybody an idea of my anticipation. Typically, I order everything digitally, and I was willing to go and actually purchase a physical book uh, to read this one. Um, that's like a big sign of commitment and excitement about a book uh, on my end. The interesting thing was, as I was getting through, as I got about, I, I don't know, seven eighths of the way through the book, I I asked myself, I stopped for a second, I was like, wait a minute. Like they've made reference to Ben and that he was a troubled kid. And Han and Leia have these sort of like tangential mentions of, you know, difficulties in the relationship and everything. And you find out a lot about the centrists, but not one mention of there's a there's a mention of Hawks, but there's no mention of Snow. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And so that that stood out to me. Like they are really playing it close to the vest for Snoke if they're not willing to reveal him even in this. Yeah, that was it was not surprising to me, but it does seem like that I guess at least after episode eight, where we're probably gonna find out a lot more of that kind of stuff, is my guess, is that that's when they feel like maybe they'll be able to fill in the story. And you know, knowing that, which is so interesting to me, that one of the creators for episode eight, Ryan Johnson, had a bunch of ideas that he had for this novel, and Claudia Gray was able to work a lot of them in. I let's just pray to the Lord that the extras for episode eight are better than nine. I mean, than seven, because I want to know what he told her should be in this book, which we probably won't be able to know. Until, you know, once that movie comes out, because it would probably give us too many hints about what's going to happen in in eight. So to me, I think that's, you know, huge. The fact that they're invested enough in this book by Claudia Gray to have Ryan Johnson be giving her some some pointers. To me, that's that's really kind of a first, I think, for, you know, Star Wars lit. Yeah, it would be great to interview her after episode eight comes out to find out specifically what he told her to put in the book. I mean, we can we can guess at it after we see episode eight, but I'd like to know specifically, was it ideas? Was it actual scenes, action that he's telling her to put in there, certain motivations? I, I'd, I'd like to know how involved he was in this. I am willing to bet, and pure conjecture, that uh, the way that they... okay. We're we're going spoiler, and that we're presuming people who are listening to this oh, have read the book. Total right? spoilers for the book, yes. Since everything hinges, not everything, but like so much hinges on the big reveal. 
of the revelation of Leia's and Luke's parentage that I, you know, I'm willing to venture a guess that that was something that they, that Ryan Johnson pointed out and said, this is going to be a big hinge point. She might've had ideas about what, how much was going to be revealed or something like that. But I think it's very interesting that the, so much of the story hinges on that moment that honestly, if you go back to the old EU and things like that, the reveal of who her father was, was, eh, you know, it was there, but it wasn't really, it was like, it wasn't like a big shell shock moment. They went into it as, well, the audience knows, so we'll just presume that the word got out there and nobody's going to really like have a big problem with it, you know, especially after they deal with the Nogiri and stuff like that. The idea that Luke and Leia, first off, Luke is already essentially gone missing. He's already disappeared, essentially. Um, it's just that Ben is with him at that point. But the idea that they kept a lid on it, that not everybody knew, I think um, if you go back to our Force Awakens discussion, that was one of the things was one of the big questions is how on earth did Snoke appropriate the Skywalker family history to twist Ben? Because I'm going into it with the old EU mentality of, oh, well, it was just talked about and people just knew about it. Well, no, if they kept it a secret, there you go. That's the big reveal and that shows why Snoke is able to manipulate Ben and twist the truth of Vader's story about it. And even showing Leia struggle with the same sort of concept of, okay, he had like a, you know, a last minute redemption, a deathbed conversion. But wow, I'm kind of having trouble accepting that as reality, you know? Yeah, I and I love where you're going. So I just want to continue. Let's let's talk about uh, we'll we'll get back to talking about the world building that goes on. But let's talk about, you know, being in Vader's shadow and this big reveal. I mean, this is the huge part of the book. And, you know, Leia has such a tortured history with this. Like she kind of love hates her father. You know, she uh, basically Leia needs some serious therapy. Uh, to talk through this, you know, and she's never gone to therapy. You know, they don't have that in Star Wars. So uh, she, you know, she doesn't get a safe space or anything like that. She's <laughs> got to deal with it. And I, I loved the fact that for her, she has such conflicted feelings about Anakin. She doesn't think of him as Anakin. She thinks of him as Vader, you know, and, and it makes sense that Luke would feel differently because Luke was there. Luke experienced through the force the, the turn in his father. You know, he knew for certain Leia wasn't there. She didn't feel that. She she doesn't have that same connection in the Force to know with certainty what Luke knows. So it makes sense that she has so much more of a of a, a very tortured relationship with her dead father. And I love the way that Claudia Gray deals with that, and I think it was handed perfectly. Um, and you can understand why Luke and Leia would want to keep this a secret because to everybody else, Vader was just as bad as the Emperor. Yeah, but here, here's the thing. It, it's rare when I read a book that I yell something out loud and my wife happened to be in the room so she had to listen to me talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not reading the book, so she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but, you know... They're portraying Leia as this hero. She All the things she's done with the Rebellion, all the things she's done in the Senate over the last 20 years, all these great things. She's the most respected politician, and she was raised by Bail Organa. 
since she was an infant. They know she was a war baby. And yet, as soon as they find out that she's the daughter of Vader slash Anakin Skywalker, they quickly turn against her. She can't be trusted. She must be setting us up. She must be evil. And I'm thinking, with a resume like that for 30-some years, 40 years or whatever time has gone by, do they really believe someone who didn't know her father that was raised by Bail Organa, who's done all these things, would turn against them and be evil? I, I, but, but does that really shock you? I mean, because does, isn't that just kind of a picture of our world? Like the moment somebody finds something out about something that isn't quite copacetic or go with their belief about that person, they immediately turn on. There's no critical thought like you're putting into it. It's just the immediate emotionalism of, oh, she's awful. And then that's what's happened in this, this Star Wars universe. They're just as polarized. They're just as, emotionally driven as we are today in our political system i mean it's just as bad and so to me that turn of the people it was the the master turn of the politicians today doing it to each other because the people aren't really thinking they're just being led by the media which is what's happening in the star wars universe which shocking enough well i'm not surprised by the opposing party but her own party only two people defended her and I just would feel like there would be more people that would understand that and be, you know, back her up and keep putting her on the pedestal because her party wants to lead forward. They don't, this is a step back for them. And they didn't even come to her defense. Yes. But what I would, what I would say in support of Matt's point is that she becomes toxic at that point. Like it's all about the public perception. It, it, truth sort of doesn't Not even. Not the Britney Spears. Well, way yeah. but yeah <laughs> but but it, it really is like a, a public perception thing where as soon as vader's name gets thrown out there at the very least you know it's going to be a shell shock moment it's it's uh i think it additional to the political sort of thing is and this has always been something that you, you sort of wrestle with even with the redemption story of of anakin skywalker is i think that society at large nowadays is less inclined to want to believe in the redemption story uh especially the deathbed conversion like it, it's become a far more cynical self-serving world and i think that the book winds up intentionally or not reflecting where we are like you roll it back to the you know to the 1970s when the original star wars comes out and people have been beaten down by all of the situations and everything people want to believe in you know, redemption and good and, and coming back and you come to the world now and people are, people are, they look for reasons to tear down heroes and to beat people up because of, you know, oh, you did something in your past. You, that must mean you're exactly the same now as you were back then. Like people don't want to give an inch, especially to an opponent in terms of, Maybe they put their life together. Maybe they moved forward and and uh, you know and figured things out. And I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to believe that if somebody were right now, you couldn't say it, but let's roll it back twenty or thirty years, and you find out that somebody in the U.S. Senate is Hitler's nephew, and like that's going to cause a, a shock wave that is going to uh, you know have repercussions for that person's reputation and, and the way they perceive them. I, I think that's, I think that's completely believable. You don't think Donald Trump is related to Hitler, do you? Uh, no, I believe he's related to Darth Vader, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, I've seen the video on the internet. Oh, 
man. Well, I'm interested to see now how they bridge this book based on what we're talking about to The Force Awakens, where our main characters are perceived as heroes, and now we're seeing the fall of our heroes. So somehow they've got to weave it where maybe the galaxy is behind them. And maybe in The Force Awakens, they're not. Maybe I'm you know, reading into it and just assuming people think of them as heroes, but I've heard them being referred to as myths and, and that's the thing though, before the awakening talks about that with Poe in the Poe story where, um, the resistance in Leia are kind of backed by the Senate, but at the same time they're, they're, they're having their cake and they're eating it too, because they're also dismissing them. Um, and saying they're they're extremists and they're they're blowing things out of the proportion uh, and all that. So like there's this give and take with with who Leia becomes and where she goes. So that by the Force Awakens, most of the Republic, you know, thinks that she's overreactionary to something that doesn't really matter, and she's taking it way too seriously. Like. The the Senate has devolved even more, so the centrists seem to have gotten even more of a hold and called her, made her more of like a reactionary than than she even is seen here. I but see, I I would add in that uh, again, getting back to the point that they address that Luke is basically missing already by this point. They mm-hmm. refer to him that people have already started to think of him as a myth, and I think that that in and of itself speaks again to we are as fans and as people who have watched these movies as the audience, we know Luke. And I think that this book actually does a really good job in a very subtle way of reinforcing this idea that it is a big galaxy and Luke Skywalker is just a story. Once, you know, if he's not being seen constantly, you know, people can look at the death star and be like that story that like some guy just like blew it up. Come on. That's, that's that's got to be made up. There's more to this story than that. You know, people don't want to believe that. They don't regard him as being important because he hasn't been seen and he has been gone. And they mention about how, well, Luke Skywalker is the son of Darth Vader. Yeah, but, you know, who's Luke Skywalker, really? I mean, no one hears from him anymore. He has no influence. Right. Right. Exactly. Which, oh, gosh, that that's the thread that we all just want to know about that they're not going to tell us until episode eight. I mean, yeah. they're not even going to touch that. and And it's just like... I want to know what's driving Luke to not, you know, like, and two, we, we also hear, we know from the force awakens that Luke has a, a, a Jedi, a small Jedi order happening. And he's not just training Ben because Ben is responsible for the death of, you know, other people in his order. So it's like, there's this whole story going on with Luke. We have absolutely no clue about Leia really obviously has no clue about either. Like, it's it's like I just want to know, so I'm definitely on the edge of my seat well, to find out what the heck's going on with Luke. Like, where's Luke? Hashtag where's Luke? Where's, right. Yeah, where's Ray? Where's Luke? Where's everybody? But <laughs> what I was wondering is, you know, I've always made the assumption since December that Luke has been missing because of the effects of Kylo Ren, the fall of Ben Solo. But he's been in hiding and off the grid even before that happens. And so, yeah, why, why is he, why is he somewhere where people don't see him in or hear from him anymore? Even Leia doesn't No, And, but they also don't hear from Ben like through this while they, because they kept referring to, you know, we haven't heard from Luke and Ben. I almost wonder, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, 10 years out, like in my brain, I'm like, Oh, is this right around the time that, that it happens? 
because Luke's already mm. been gone. Mm. And then if Ben suddenly yeah. shows up around this time, you know, leading the first order, essentially, and you know, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, but Luke's still missing. Is he like, so th then there's this big question of like, is he alive or not? Like if he's already missing when Ben shows back up on the scene as Kylo Ren, then, you know, is he alive? Is he dead? And I think it actually adds a lot of weight to the question of like, is Luke alive or dead at the beginning of episode seven? Like, I, I think we all go into episode seven with a given that Luke's still alive because we know that Mark Hamill's still alive and he filmed. You know, it's sort of like Han's death. We all knew it was coming because of Harrison Ford's, you know, history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that this does a good job of sort of like backtracking that a little bit so that you go into episode seven of understanding the idea of people saying, I don't know if he's dead or not or alive or where he might be. What I like here uh, talking about Leia and, and the Vader connection um, is that at the very end of the book, uh, one of the quotes is Leia thinking, and she said, never had she considered that the turn might begin in a better place out of the desire to save someone or to avenge a great wrong. Even if it led to evil, that first impulse might have been born of loyalty, a sense of justice or even love. And I love the way that Claudia Gray is able to give Leia the insight that the desire to do what Vader did doesn't have to start from somebody being completely evil. It could come from a good place. Basically, the whole, you know, the, the, the road to hell is paid with good intentions. And Anakin's intentions aren't necessarily evil. It's his actions based on the beliefs of what's going to happen if he doesn't act or doesn't do something. And so this thing, it was a really great way to tie in and give us even a little bit of a, um, a thought process behind Anakin, uh, even now in the prequels, and, and just kind of give us a, 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 a little bit of, as his daughter's learning to understand him, you're understanding him just a little bit better as well. And I think, I thought she pulled that off masterfully to, to help her in some ways have a little bit of redemption for who her father was, that he wasn't always just all evil. He probably was somebody who had a good heart and went down the wrong path, and that's what destroyed him, you know? And it makes a really good point to me, the idea that it is our choices who define who we are, you know? Personal responsibility. You have to take responsibility for your actions, and Anakin's actions lead him to the dark side it's not that he was he it was irrevocably pulled to the dark side no he chose to go down that path well i took it a step further when i got to what you're talking about and that is that everyone now is suspicious of leia because vader was her father therefore now that we see her starting to understand her father and maybe why he chose to go to the dark side. I thought, is this indicating that we should be suspicious of Leia now that she's understanding why Anakin would have taken that path? Is she starting to look at that path? Maybe everybody's right that we should be concerned that she is Vader's daughter and that she has those genes that may take her to that same path if she's understanding why he did what he did. Uh, I didn't take it that, that way where I took it uh, 
the, the step further was that moment was necessary for her to finally come to understand that his redemption was possible. Like she's sort of going like, because she says, you know, I, that she essentially takes Luke's word for it, that he turned the corner at the end, but it's something that the galaxy doesn't want to believe that she doesn't want to believe. But when she has this moment where she suddenly understands that she could have struck out in anger, but it wasn't, it wasn't even a, uh, it was a righteous anger. It wasn't a, a vicious or sociopath's anger. It was a righteous anger. And I think that moment gives her the hook to come to terms with the idea that this person who took a monstrous path was still capable of coming back from it. Um, I think that's, I think that's an interesting read, but I, I definitely, I think we definitely forked at that moment because I, I went down a completely different road with it. Well, she didn't go down the road because maybe she was raised by Bail Organa. And so that's the advantage she had over Vader. Well, I, you know, I think this is a whole philosophical uh, discussion that we could have about. <laughs> Isn't that where we always go with these things? Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. always end up at the parents. Uh, it always comes back to good parenting. Mm-hmm. So Bail Organa raised a good kid uh, because he instilled in her good values. So I do want to jump back a, a little bit to where we kind of started in this idea of, you know, what everybody knows is well documented on all the Star Wars shows that we've done about the Force Awakens. John, you, you know those too. I was remiss the fact that uh, you know JJ felt like the world building was not important, and he left out some world building elements that could have really, I think, helped the Force Awakens being a much better film. And it is books like this that continued. I feel like to make my point. <laughs> Because it's so rich and so deep, the world building that happens here, and it really gives us a context to put the the Force Awakens in, which makes it make more sense. Um, everything that's happening there, and I love the way that Claudia Gray works with the the world building of showing us the, what the Republic's like, you know, uh, the, what the government's like here. What's what would cause it to 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 be something that could fall to something like the first order, uh, you know, and, and honestly, just the thematic elements of the polarization between a centrist party that's looking to have a strong government, central government, and a populist party that's wanting more of the control to be in the hands of the individual planets, kind of it's similar to the model of the Republic the U.S. has set up, except... They don't have any executive branch. So they have a judiciary and they have a Senate system, but there's no executive there, that other counterbalance. And so, and they do all that because they're afraid of there ever being somebody who has enough power to be another Palpatine. And I just, but because of that, you, you end up with a really lame duck Senate uh who can't get anything done because there's one side and the other and there's nobody there to counterbalance them and i just all of that together i just to me was absolutely fascinating mainly because claudia gray gets to basically play in our world but put it in the star wars world and i i you know through science fiction good science fiction has always been able to mirror and show us the brokenness that we're in so uh, to me that that world building was fascinating for what it does for The Force Awakens and just in general. 
Uh, I agree about the world building. This is where I'm going to come at you from an angle that I don't think you expect me to come from. What I realized with the world building in this book was exactly how much world building went on in the margins and in the ancillary materials in the original trilogy and in the prequels. Yes, there's a lot of senatorial procedure that is covered directly on film in Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith, and I love it all. Um, But there is still a lot of world building, a lot of fleshing out that occurred in ancillary materials that came out in the margins. So while I was enjoying the world building in this, I mean, loving it hardcore, uh, one of the things I actually wrote down in the margin of one of the pages was, this is the type of, this would, if this were a movie, this is the type of movie that would I would love, but I would completely understand why other members of the audience might not have as good a time as I was with this. And so, like, while I applaud the world building, this is really rich. There's no... There's no way with the with the point of attack that they chose, the moment in time that they chose with The Force Awakens, for them to have put this world building into it. Force Awakens with the destruction of the Republic homeworld. And I, I'm not excusing this per se, uh, but, you know, and, and even I pinged it, was like, you know, the Republic homeworld gets blown apart, and it's like, and? Like, you know, it, it's just all of a sudden happening, and it feels like a bookend to something as opposed to the beginning of something. So, you know, in episode seven feels like a real sequel, but, you know, for me, the only que- the only real question is whether this book should have come out before episode seven to set the stage for things, or whether coming out after is a better kind of salve for those of us who felt that it needed more world building in episode seven. Does that make sense? Uh, no, I, I I understand what you're saying completely, and and of course I don't think uh, this book should have been all of it. Kind of should have been shoved into the movie. Um, I, I definitely think there were pieces that JJ took out that we know from script and and from novelization. Some minor things that could have been added to add immense weight to the world building. We're talking maybe three four minutes of scenes, max. So you don't need all of this to be all of that movie, you know? Obviously, you're right. This doesn't play as episode seven. Everybody would come out of this and be like, what? You know? At the same time, uh, you ask a great and valid question, which I want to answer. And I think, yes, this book should have come out before the film to set the stage. Because there's, there's only one thing that really gets spoiled in this book, and that's Han and Leia having a son. And um, I, the way that she does it is so good here that all you do is ask questions about Luke. Like you said, is, is Luke really gone? Where are him and Ben? You know, like that's the only question you get. It leads to a great mystery. Um, I, I, I think that you market it right. You're not going to be giving anything away. What you're really going to be doing is wetting the appetite for people uh, in such a strong and powerful way. And, and think of how much more important, like people, more people would have read this book then 
than even now, I think, because if you were like, this is going to help you out with The Force Awakens, this is going to make it even better for you, I totally think, I mean, you could have suckered way more people even than are reading it now into reading it then. I I, I just, I, I do, I completely think this book should have come out beforehand. Uh, hmm. Bruce, do you want to do you want to venture something? Because I, I definitely have a thought about the I think an X factor that plays into that. What? But I, I don't want to walk all over you here. What? What do you well, think? When the question was asked, I was thinking no. But now, what Matt was saying, uh, I, I I guess my concern. Is, I I think yeah, it would have definitely given a little more weight to the movie. Any any additional meat before going into a movie is going to give it more weight. But I also feel that they would have pulled back on a lot of other things in this novel. I think it would have been a weaker novel because there's certain things they probably didn't want to come out. For example, that Han and Leia were together. I think they wanted that to be revealed in the movie that Han and Leia were married at one point. And I don't think they wanted to establish, have anybody know that was an established relationship going into this movie. And maybe a few other things, but... It definitely adds weight, but I think also seeing the movie first adds more weight to the novel. So it can kind of go both ways. I don't think it... I, everything about Star Wars, everything about the books that come out, all the ancillary materials adds weight on each other, and they just all build. I don't know if it really matters what order they come in as long as they come out. And see, for, for me, the X factor, what makes the, the question more difficult to answer than I... I'd like because there is a part of me that very strongly agrees with you, Matt. You know, if this book had come out beforehand, boom, I go into episode seven and I can say to the people that didn't read it, aha, you should have read the book and gotten it. But at the same time, at the same time, I don't know that they're going to get more people than than the fans who are reading it now to read the book because I couldn't even get, for instance, my wife loved The Force Awakens. It's the only movie in recent memory that I know that she has watched uh, like three times. Okay. Usually she watches movie, drops mic, walks out of the room, she's done. And so obviously it speaks to, you know, a, a more general audience than that. I think that in a sense, it gives away again that they know they have us hook, line, and sinker. And so they knew that sucker no you know i i think that they knew that so <laughs> i mean uh, come on i'm a sucker i i i they, your order right. the book and, you know, suckers no. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but they knew we're doing we, a podcast about star wars right <laughs> they they knew we would go to the movie anyway and so they focused on appealing i think if they release this book first and they say this is the book you have to read before you go into star wars i think that hits a nerve that they're that they were very obviously afraid to hit with their marketing that's going to make the general public feel like, oh, geez, this is the prequels again. That's exactly what deep. I was just thinking. From when, you, as you're talking, that's what I'm thinking. If somebody read this book, they'd say, oh, it's all that political crap that we saw in the prequels that I didn't like. They're going that same direction. I'm not interested. Right. It could have ruined it for some people. And I and I think also that this speaks to the. I mean, honestly. It does speak to the flavor of now Lucas chose to tell episode four, five and six. So it was two linearly told um, stories. Right. But one of the ideas that he even toyed with was were they going to be in order or was it just going to jump around the way that they're doing now with Rogue One is going to roll it back before 
the original Star Wars, even though Episode 7 came out and this book takes place between Jedi and Episode 7, this really is getting the feel for me of a serial. And I think that what this book does, even being released later, is it kind of excites me because I I feel like if I go into a Star Wars movie now, I know the answer is going to come. So if I leave with questions, I'm not going to feel like they did it to be cheap or to screw me out of something. You know, I'm not going to feel like they took shortcuts. I'm going to say, okay, but I know the answer is coming in one of these other episodes, be it book or movie, coming down the pike. And does that mean I'm getting played? Does that mean that I've, you know, started drinking the Kool-Aid? Maybe. I don't know. But that's what I love about Star Wars is you don't get all the answers and you're peeling back the onion now. It, it's a, You see the movie and then you say, I want more. I want to know more about this. And now you start peeling back that onion. I guess for me, the question became, okay, Lucas put in, in the movies everything that he wanted you to know, right? Mm. I don't think that there was ever a point where he was thinking, oh, we'll just tell that in a book. That was never Lucas's mindset. Because he 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 didn't have the idea of it being a connected universe in that way where books are canon, comics are canon, uh, you know all this stuff. You know, for him it was it was the films, and he told you what he wanted you to know in the films, what he felt like you should know. And the only time where that started to get added to was when he started to do the Clone Wars and began to play in that time period and begin to expound because he felt like there were more stories to tell in that period. But again, I I still think for him, in his films, he told you everything that he thought that you needed to know to be able to get the story. And I guess for me, I I, I always approach uh, every Star Wars film, like I, I have approached that, at least the first six, um, that what's in the film is what I really need to know, whereas now they have a whole new mindset that's more kind of like that tv thing where we'll tell you next week in the next episode you know like um everything's going to it's the marvel form of storytelling like you're only going to get part of the answers here but we're using it you know what i'm saying like they, they do that in the marvel films big time and so uh star wars is doing that now too um i guess for me my only worry is that it gets a little bit lazy uh, because you just say, oh, I'll, I will just add that in a book later. And and to me, honestly, still feel that in, in The Force Awakens, that it's it's a little bit lazy to not add some important context to the story. It's a great story, uh, character-wise, but contextually, it doesn't work as well because I don't understand the context unless I have read these ancillary materials mm. to their fullest and I get my fullest understanding, yes, from reading these books and then watching the film. But I, I'm, I'm, I honestly feel kind of sad for the people who don't do it because they're not getting the full experience. They don't, they don't necessarily maybe understand fully what's going on. I mean, how many times did I talk to somebody and they're like, "Yeah, I didn't really know what was going on in a few scenes in The Force Awakens, but it sure was fun." Like, uh, uh, okay, see. I think Force Awakens. Uh, I I definitely. I definitely agree that it's the the first Star Wars movie uh, of the seven that relies on the fact that you saw, you know, at least three of the previous six. Whereas 
all of the previous six functioned in such a way where there was enough internal story resolution that it didn't matter um, whether you were just jumping in or not. You know, title crawl, jump in, middle of things, ready to go. Whereas uh, Force Awakens has much more of a structure of we expect you to have seen at the very least, Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back and probably Return of the Jedi to get to this point. So I think I think in that, yeah, episode seven doesn't occur in a vacuum. Now, as much as I enjoyed getting all of the world building in this, do I consider it vital to the enjoyment of episode seven? I again I point to my wife who will never read this book and was perfectly happy with the Force Awakens. So is it ju- So ignorance is bliss? Um I, I I just don't think that the I don't think that the answers that are so uh technical as these are as important to an audience member like her. You know, for her Star Wars yeah, has never no, been anything more than entertainment. Right, and you were saying, Matt, about Lucas putting in what is needed for the story. I'm, I believe that J.J. didn't feel this is needed to tell the story of The Force Awakens. Yeah, it gives more weight, but I think in the end, all he needed, to, I think in his thought is, we just need to establish that there is a new Republic, and the First Order is here to blow them up. And we destroy them and they're gone. We don't need all to know the makeup of the of the New Republic and, and what's going on within the New Republic. It's the same thing when, the, uh, when A New Hope came out. They talk about an, an imperial senate and, a, and an emperor. And, and it's like, I, what is all that? If a book had come out after I saw that movie that explained all that, I'd say, well, that should have been in the movie. It would have given more weight to A New Hope. And I, I just think from a filmmaker standpoint, I just don't think he felt it was necessary to go into any depth about the new republic but you're right if he did put something in there it definitely would have added more weight but it wasn't necessary in his opinion probably not well and i I guess that's where i would completely vehemently disagree with jj uh and and say uh, the wonderful thing about the original star wars starting in the, the vacuum that it does is that everything is an archetype so it's immediately understandable to the audience we understand the idea of an empire suppressing people like that's not something you need to explain to anyone but now we're not in a vacuum anymore star wars has six films to it and so when you start with the force awakens it's not in a vacuum anymore even if it's 30 years all the only question is what happened in the 30 years and what exists and if they had done Again, just a few things more. I feel like it. Anyway, yeah, I, I, that's a whole other subject. Yeah, yeah, we, let, we, let's we, let's not re-prosecute yeah. the Force Awakens, but I will say that a character who gets a uh, a very brief name drop in this, Hux does have that speech that does serve as some really good world building. You know, that's a good monologue to let you know what's going on in the galaxy at that point, at least from their point of view. But mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, you know, it would have been nice to see Hux in here. I his name drop was great. Um, yes. We know that yes. he was known before this moment, so which made me actually question his age because if he's established by this point, like Don Hall Gleason doesn't strike me as some like he struck who's me who's in his forties. Yeah, so well, he struck me as somebody like maybe late thirties, maybe a really well you know kept himself in shape early forties, but like 
I like I read you know if this is really 20 years after Jedi, I read him more as like you know 25 in the uh, Force Awakens well, I'm, tr- I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to be generous here but like going with this timeline if this came out 20 years after in the 30 years like we know he's got to be at least beyond 30 years old right but like now I'm thinking like is he supposed to be like 50 like he he's because he's he he's he taught Lady Carice at a uh, at at a uh, 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 an academy before he disappeared. So how old is this guy? Yeah, a t- apparently plastic surgery in the Star Wars universe is incredible. Yeah. I mean he he he's got the best surgery money can buy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I almost questioned <laughs> if this was even his father or something. I was like, wait, is this the Hux? Because he's shouldn't he be younger than this? Because he what, he's running that an actually academy makes more sense. Yeah, I'm putting that in my head, Canon. Actually, I think that makes more sense for this to be his father. <laughs> but but is the but the first name the first name is correct for the Hux we know, right? I think so. Brendall Hux. Yes, that's the name that's dropped in the book. Yep. Yeah, that's just so weird. That is so weird. That's a that's a great plot point hole that that doesn't quite line up with Dom Gleason's age but okay i i do want to ask you guys something uh and i apologize we always end up talking about the force awakens because it's it this this really plays into that and and it 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 makes for an interesting conversation but something that was so interesting about this book was the kind of this theme of romanticizing the past Mm. and the way in which especially a character like ransom um he hated vader and palpatine but he glamorizes a lot of these things about the empire and you know to me it it seemed very timely this idea of people not really learning the mistakes of the past or kind of learning the wrong lesson because of this almost revisionist history that's happening through the centrist movement in the senate where they're really I mean, these people, some of them are really almost worship the Empire and the Emperor. It's, it, was, it, it was really disconcerting to me to see that. Uh, okay. I, you know what? I, I want to wade into that uh, immediately because there were two things that, that jump out at me about it. And the, the first is that it went a long way toward establishing the idea because once the prequels come out, you know, when we meet Luke, the idea... You know, some people raise the question of like, wait a minute, everybody forgot all of this about the Jedi and the galaxy in 20 years? You know, like, how does that happen? And I think that this speaks to the idea that that history can be suppressed. And yes, in, in other ancillary work, they talk about how the Empire, like any totalitarian regime, you know, monitors what you know and what is said and, and that sort of thing. But I think that it speaks to how quick culture moves now. In terms of mm, idolizing yeah. the past, what was interesting to me whether it was intentional or not, was the idea of uh, the controversy that happened recently, relatively recently, about uh, Confederate memorabilia, where there were people saying, well, you know, the, 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 that flag doesn't mean that to me, and other people were saying that flag means this to me, and, and people having that sort of argument in the public square about it. And... I think it spoke I think his character spoke to that and I thought she handled it beautifully because there were actually people who collected Nazi memorabilia as well because they were just they fancied themselves history buffs and so you know that they, they would collect those things and I think that 
it's an interesting idea to prosecute, especially within the context of a Star Wars story, to say that there would be people that would look at something and say, oh, well, you know, I don't like the way it was done, but the general, you know, concepts behind it were okay, and isn't this a beautiful helmet? Isn't this a beautiful Royal Guard helmet? And not think about the fact that the person who wore that helmet was a, you know, basically a trained killer who was loyal only to one person in the entire galaxy and would have killed you without blinking. And, you know, I, I think I think that it's it's very interesting and having Leia as, you know, that that focal point when she walks in and sees his office, you know, if somebody walks in and you, and you see like, you know, stormtrooper helmets and blasters and stuff like that, your first thought is going to be, oh, my God, you you love the Empire. And it was so interesting to see him say, well, no, 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 I didn't like Palpatine or anything, but, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of cool looking stuff and, you know, everything's in disarray. Wouldn't it be neat to have order in the galaxy again? And so you can sort of see how that sort of thinking could even be leveraged by somebody like the centrists, like Lady Carice, who want to manipulate because they, they even think about yep. enlisting Ransom as an ally at one point. Well, it is 20 years since the fall of the Empire, and here he's serving for the New Republic, the Senate that was formed after the Empire. And so it's strange to me that someone in a political life like him that would be a senator and work for the public good would not understand how wrong the Empire is. Yes, he understands that... It was not done correctly, but something like that done the right way would be would is something he believes in. But I don't I have a hard time with the idea that twenty years later he can put up stormtrooper helmets and, and other empire items, especially in the role that he is, knowing that anybody's gonna walk into his office and not agree with these items in his possession or question who he is. I mean, that's just a wrong move. It makes me think a lot of things in star Wars makes me think that the, a year in star Wars galaxy is a lot longer than our year. Cause a lot of people don't even age that well in the star Wars galaxy. So, <laughs> you know, I, it, 20 years is just a short period of time. Maybe, you know, looking back at the American civil war and somebody putting up things, you know, yeah, it's been a hundred plus years, but you know, it's, I don't know, 20 years. It reminds me very much of though this this idea of yeah, even even when the Soviet Union was a big thing and and people here in America would would maybe talk about it. Well, but but Stalin just really did it the wrong way. If we did it like this, you know, it would go better, you know, discounting the fact that Stalin is responsible for and communism under him was responsible for, you know, the death of over 20 million people, you know, way more than Hitler. Okay. It, it, it's, it's that form of government under him was, was awful, you know, and, and worse, the worst atrocities that man has ever known, because we don't even know about all of them. That's how bad it was. And so, um, it, it reminds me of that, of, of people, mm. In the Star Wars galaxy saying, well, uh, yeah, okay, so Palpatine and Vader weren't that great, but wasn't the Empire, I mean, if, if it had been in better hands, you know, it's the same argument that Anakin was making to pa Padme 
someone in, wise. In episode yes. two saying, well, I don't know who should be in charge, right. but somebody should be in charge. Yep. That's the exact same argument. Well, and, and what what's interesting then is I, I think you bringing up the Soviet Union also brings up the fact that the turmoil in the galaxy uh, would would therefore be very reflective of, you know, Eastern Europe falling apart uh, through the 1990s like that. You know, that seems like ancient history at this point. But in the 1990s, Eastern Europe, like all of a sudden, all of these people who had been sort of suppressed uh, to keep from fighting each other suddenly, you know, they were like, hey, you, you know, there's nobody around here to keep us from attacking each other now. Excellent. And they started fighting and redrawing boundaries and all of that sort of thing. So I, it would almost be interesting to see a novel set before this one, you know, exploring the idea of reprosecuting, um, you know, old grievances that predated the empire. And maybe maybe there's something I mean, it'd be interesting because they, they keep talking about a law that they passed where people couldn't be prosecuted for the sins of their parents, um, you know, which, of course, ties into the uh, to, into the Leia thing. Well, and, and what was interesting, too, is is that I really felt like there's also this thing that's happening in the book where you have the problem of a generation who doesn't grow up in war, and so they are not understanding the cost of freedom and of peace, you know, and for them, the idea of never forget is getting lost, and so as they look back with these kind of rose-colored glasses at things and see that the galaxy seem to have been more peaceful and, you know, more in order. I mean, it really reminds me of, you know, when Thomas Jefferson says, I prefer dangerous freedom over peaceful slavery. And, uh, but people forget over time when you're not in the middle of a war fighting for your very life, you know. Uh, they forget the idea of constant vigilance against the 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 guard of evil i mean because for some reason we seem to think as human beings just in general and apparently it's, it's true in star wars that we get soft on security as as if evil takes a holiday you know but we know from maz kanata that there's only one fight and that's against the dark side and and it keeps trying to rise but we want to forget that and just go about our daily lives and do whatever we want to do and be whoever we want to be and forget that Freedom and peace come at a cost, always. That's just the way we are as human beings. And people even in Star Wars are forgetting that, that this freedom costs a lot to get there, you know? Like, I just thought that was a really, it, it, it's thematically, this book is, is just brilliant, I think. Well, here's some more world building and the fact that what this generation doesn't seem to understand how evil the empire was they almost act the same way the current population thinks of luke is almost like it's a, like he's a myth it's almost like mm -hmm. the empire is a myth and it's almost glamorized it's it's this fun history and so what this world building does inform me is that the education system sucks because they're not really <laughs> understanding their history in this galaxy <laughs> Well, well, I mean, you know, if they're, it, you know, obviously the populists, they're all teaching their own version of history in each system. There's no uh, centralized history uh, that that's happening, I guess, in the Star Wars. So galaxy. they need some Common Core in the galaxy, is what you're saying? Uh, I'm not going that far, but I will say that uh, I think that <laughs> I th I think that that actually is 
something that the Star Wars galaxy continually wrestles with that we that we seem to have just absorbed, you know, ourselves. I mean, or I, I guess just it's, you know, since science fiction is always going to be that reflection, how good is anybody's command of history? Like in the lot in our, in reality, in our lives, like I, maybe the star Wars thing speaks to the whole idea that, you know, different groups of people perceive history so differently that, you know, Leia is taken aback by the fact that he can idolize it in any way. You know, he's like, oh, you know, like we've been saying, it's like, oh, well, Palpatine and Vader were bad, but maybe the et cetera, et cetera. And Leia, Leia can sit there and say, well, no, that's, that, you know, that reasoning doesn't even hold up. How can you even, you know, go down that that line of thought? And it's, um, yeah, I, I do think it, it speaks to that whole idea of, you know, once things are in the past, if something bad didn't directly happen to you as a part of the bad thing in the past, it attains a sort of abstract, you know, conceptual status that is no longer emotionally or even in a, a way intellectually relatable. Well, and it, it, it really does speak to how easy revisionist history becomes in our own minds, you know, and, and uh, the the again, the constant vigilance, not just against evil, but the constant vigilance against bad history telling and the importance of of the study of history because it's famous for a reason those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it and you can see that happening in the star wars galaxy as it's cyclical in that nature that things keep happening because there isn't there's that struggle against good and evil which is is really what the whole thing is about but that I mean, even this government, it's it's heading down the same path that they were in the old republic, you know, becoming a bureaucratic nightmare and not really getting anything done. Everybody just out for themselves. I mean, it's it's already that way almost in 20 years, you know, whereas it took a thousand years uh, of the old republic to, to fall into that. Maybe that's just because the Jedi were around and and, uh, you know, they were more of guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy and and luke's jedi aren't there yet luke's not even around to really help with that and so i don't that exit that raised some really interesting you questions. know i, I think i think that's very interesting because uh, in a sense that almost speaks to you're starting to sound like a centrist because you're you're looking for the jedi to be around to impose that order that you're looking for so maybe the galaxy maybe maybe that speaks to uh, the corruption of the jedi but in addition to that, there were actually uh, shades a little bit in this of, for me, I got echoes of The Dark Knight Rises. The whole idea yes. of the truth needs to have its day. And if you live with these lies, even if they're well-intentioned, even if they're told to protect somebody, then you are not going to, like, a lie is a lie is a lie. And so you never know when it's going to fall apart. And so, you know, Bail Organa innocently takes part in this thing to protect Leia, to protect the galaxy. And here it is so many years after his death, you know, coming out all, like the letter that Bane holds up, you know, from Commissioner Gordon, the truth about Darth Vader. And it shatters everybody's faith in everything. And so, you know, that, that sort of idea of a lie is a lie is a lie gets back even to the, the whole thing of Obi-Wan and Yoda choosing to lie to Luke about everything. 
Yeah, exactly. I think um, I'll clarify once, and then we'll move on to the, some of the new characters. But the the idea for me was that it seemed like in the old Republic, the Jedi were were kind of a barometer for the galaxy and helping um, shepherd, but not be the the. Oh, I mean, they weren't oh, the, no. the centrist leadership. I, I, I was just totally ribbing you. I was just okay. poking. Okay, fun. yeah, no, I, that's <laughs> sorry. That, but it does. I mean, again, it raises so many fascinating questions, which I love, and that's what a great Star Wars book should do. Um, I do want to get to because I want to get to a couple more things before we wrap up. Uh, Claudia Gray and, and and you already mentioned this, Bruce. Uh, she's fantastic at creating new characters. Lost Stars is full of all new characters for the most part, and captivated all of us. And so we have some great new characters that she has written for us here in Bloodline. I just wanted to talk about those. What were some of the ones that for you uh, stood out? And uh, what are the ones that you can't actually wait to get more of, hopefully, later on down the road? Maybe even in, uh, who knows, episode uh, episode 8. Well, I mean, we know one won't be showing up because she got blown up. but. <laughs> I like the one that got blown up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cora was great. I really liked her. I liked her because I, I knew a little bit about her from the novelization, but uh, we really got some interesting backstory to her here, that she was a pilot, so that was interesting. She also ha suffers from some disease that pilots get, especially when they're young, which the, I thought that was an interesting twist, too. I, I, she had a great personality, very... Very courageous. Uh, and she also uh, worked with Han Solo on his racing team. What that was another point was that Han Solo was a racer uh, during this time. He's out there racing. So uh, I would say she was my favorite. And my second favorite is uh, probably, was it Lady Karaz? Karaz? Whatever. Uh, I don't know. Chris? Chris? I liked her because I, I knew right away that there was some bad going on with her. And then the reveals yeah, later yeah. were very interesting. You know what, Bruce? You mentioned Greer. And um, I thought her character was really fascinating because, like you said, she is only Leia's assistant because she has been diagnosed with this disease that, like you said, pilots can get. It's, it's one of the dangers of, of being a spacefaring society. And it's it's very rare, uh, but it can happen, and she's got it. And, you know, she'd rather be out there being a hot rod on Han Solo's racing team. But, you know, she does her job with Leia, I think, to the best of her ability. And um, she she really was a fascinating character. I thought that she was really well written, and I really liked the struggles she had. And I mean, she had such an interesting storyline because the whole thing was about her kind of realizing this, that she needs to live her life to the fullest because she doesn't necessarily know how long she has. And I thought that that was a really great storyline. And just, you know, it's, it's not the main storyline, but it's just something that the way that Claudia Gray was able to really add that in and give you some depth through characters so quickly without an amazing amount of, uh, you know, page time was, was fascinating. And her relationship too with Joff, uh, Sea Striker, 
I thought was excellent. And I, it felt a little bit like Lost Stars, where that there could be the budding romance there. Uh, she doesn't go fully there here in the book, but I got to say, I, I was kind of shipping those two. I don't know what about yeah, there, you. I, I did too. Uh, there was a little bit of that, but it, it was very small, very uh, minor hinted at a possibility of that. But yeah. Greer was definitely a central character. So if you know who she is when you watch The Force Awakens based on reading other materials. No, no, that's the wrong character because Core is the character who gets blown up. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it was Greer that got blown up. Mm-mm. No, it's uh, So Now you yeah. ruined it for That's me. okay. No, that's okay. I'm sorry. Well, also, let me just point out real quick about something we talked about earlier about Hux, Brendel Hux. So I looked it up on Wikipedia, and Brendel is the father of General Hux. And, and Brendel, get this was first appeared in Servants of the Empire, The Secret Academy. It was a Star Wars Rebels novel. Interesting. Oh, man. that So we were right that Brendel Hux uh, was a little bit too old to be the Hux we know from the yep, film. Yeah, he was the father. It was his father. That's Okay, that's fascinating. I'm glad to know that because uh, it... It takes away a pothole for me, and I love this book uh, even even more yeah. for it. So, okay, that, yeah. that makes sense. Um, yeah, it, so to me too, I mean, I think that um, what they were able to do with Ransom as the centrist senator who teams up with Leia and that whole storyline to me was just absolutely fascinating. I, I thought he was such a good character, and I was very sad to see where he ends up at the end of the book. And I'm very hopeful somehow we will see him again because I just, the whole arc that he has was just incredible to me. Um, Really, um, and what I loved about it was the fact that Leia was seeing the the need to reach out to the other side, find somebody to trust and work together and find common ground and all of those things you see politically that don't happen so much these days. Leia is is trying to do, trying to find that person. She finds it in this person. And it, I just, oh gosh, really, really fascinating to me. I really love this character. Yeah, I, I thought I thought Ransom was, uh, was a great character. Um, for me, my my personal favorite would probably have been Ransom, but I really was very intrigued by um, Carice Sarindon uh, because I think that um, the the reveal of her was handled so masterfully that to reveal that she was much more um, tricky and politically savvy than uh, she seemed at first. I thought that was a, a really great uh, hook. Uh, to that character, and I thought it was really handled very well. Well, I I think it's just a strong uh, statement. Again, I I, I don't know. Um, I have to ask you, John, because you know, obviously, we both loved uh, Dark Disciples so much. Um, is Claudia Gray really becoming the go-to author for Star Wars books right now? I mean, I, because for me she cemented herself with this one as somebody I can completely trust. Like that if she's writing, a, especially a star Wars book, 
I'm sold. I, I will pre-order that one. Yeah, uh, you know, I was actually thinking about that because we had that uh, discussion about Greg Rucka and how much we loved Greg Rucka. And um, uh, for me, uh, Claudia Gray might have just leapt over him with this book. Um, that's not to take anything away from Rucka. I think he's a great author and I think he's a great Star Wars author. But I, Claudia Gray's work just brings something super special. I think that you're right. Mm-hmm. I think that she should be the go-to author for them. Yeah. Well, the the last thing I really want to touch on real quick was the idea that we get the understanding of how the First Order becomes such a power and the things through which they have been working through. And to me, um, I just, again... Uh, I have. I keep saying this. But it's just great. Uh, it, it's hard for me to to explain just how well I think that this book sets that stage for how they become such a a massive power uh, so quickly within you know twenty so years, uh, and how they're able to build such a small little empire because we see where all this money is is coming from. You know where all these resources are coming from. It it was it was awesome. Uh, I agree that it was awesome. What it reminded me of is it almost seems like, uh, and maybe this will tie into who Snoke is, but to me it seems like they operated under the same auspices that Sidious used to set up the Confederacy of Independent Systems behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Yeah, and I think yes. that that is intentional or not a great callback to again those of us who like the prequel era and the world building there. It feels like once the Empire got defeated, somebody higher up said, okay, you know what? This has been done before. We can do this again and plunge everybody back into chaos and take advantage of it, just like the Confederates did, just like Sidious showed. So I think whoever is pulling the strings, who's, of course, Snoke, I think that speaks again to the type of character he is and how close he is to Palpatine. Yeah, this novel doesn't feature the First Order. It features organizations that are tying into and building upon the First Order. And we've got uh, warriors that are being prepped to become warriors of the First Order. So I like that it wasn't a direct, oh, and here's the First Order, and this is what they're doing. This is all the things that's building up uh, to making a full army uh, within this organization. Um, And then I... Yeah, the question towards the end of the novel is, where's all this funding coming from? And so you would assume that it's either Snoke or someone else that's tied to Snoke. So I'm hoping that we get a continuation of the story, maybe after episode eight, when Snoke, more about Snoke is revealed so they can really use that to build off of, uh, build the story into the next chapter. And that uh, this is one thing where I think the connection with what Johnson may have, um, you know, hinted at for uh, Claudia Gray, maybe giving her some pointers, you know, of um, you know what these shell corporations were basically these these uh, you know seedy underbelly, uh, uh, the dark side of of what's going on in the galaxy, these mobsters that they're using, uh, and like you said. What I love is is the fact that, you know, John, it is so much like Palpatine, and it's working again to the T. I mean, he's helping—the the organization is 
working its way into the political system at the same time that it is undermining things out there in the galaxy because the Republic is too busy worrying about itself. Its senators are too busy trying not to turn into another empire that they're they're just not being vigilant about what's going on in the galaxy. So this book, I think, is just... is. It, Claudia Gray is just doing a great job of doing so much setup for The Force Awakens, but what's going to come next as well that I just can't wait to see how it all ties in. And I guess, to me, we could continue to talk about this probably for another hour, but we're not going to uh, because we don't have the time because we all have other things to do. I, I apologize, podcast listeners. I know you'd love it, but I want to get to the big question to me, which was, what's your rating for... Bloodline. I'm really fascinated to hear this, uh, Bruce. Where, where do you where are you putting this one? I can I couldn't even get through this novel. It was awful. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, I, you know I don't even think we need to rate this book. I think everybody knows where we're going with this. I'm just going to say it yeah. right now: five out of five stars. Uh, five lost stars out of five lost stars. Yes, <laughs> I, it's an, wow. It's another knock it out of the park, uh, and I. The the two essential expanded universe, the two absolutely can't miss them, have to read them, expanded universe novels that have been written have been written by Claudia Gray, so far as I'm concerned. The the two you cannot miss. There are others where if you're a fan, you should read them, that they're great. We've talked about them before. I'm not taking anything away from those. But this feels like an essential work for uh, for Star Wars. Uh, I I can't have have said it better. I I am exactly there with both of you guys. This is five out of five lost stars. It's it is just fan freaking tastic, and um, I I couldn't have been happier. The fact that um, all of the faith that we had in Claudia Gray after Lost Stars was, was totally valid. I mean, and she's earned my love and admiration. Uh, because of this book, and uh, like Greg Rucka, become an author that I can't wait to read whatever they do in this universe. So uh, I hope that they continue to have her write more novels they need to. Just keep giving her material uh, because this, she's fantastic. Uh, and, you know, what, what I love is the fact that we get to talk about this kind of stuff here in the 602 Club. And we get to do that because we've got Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson as associate producers here through Patreon, and it's because of their help through Patreon that this show and all of the shows here on the network keep coming to you as listeners. Now, we're a listener-supported network, and so you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can become part of our team and make sure that all of the content across the network comes to you each and every week. It's a lot of content. We do a lot of things here in the network. We have so many shows, and that's why we need your help to make sure that it keeps coming to you. So just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and sign up to help us today. Guys, thank you so much. I mean, it is an absolute joy to sit here and talk Star Wars with you guys. I can't imagine a better way to spend uh, an evening uh, in most likely Cantina, although the band was a little loud. Um, so uh, hopefully next time they'll tone it down. But uh, Bruce, before we go, let everybody know where they can find you uh, online, uh, especially if they want to chat you up about some Star Wars. Yes, please. Chat me up on some Star Wars. I'm on Twitter at <laughs> Admiral 
underscore Rex. And please let me know if you're going to Star Wars Celebration in London. I would love to chat with you there, too. And John, uh, so much going on for you online. And so make sure that everybody's aware of where they can find you, because I know that they were going to want to talk to the Jedi Master about some serious Star Wars. Well, of course, I'm Kessel Junkie on Twitter and just about every other social network that you can think of. And uh, you can uh, also find me over on a uh, podcast called Words with Nerds that I do with my pal Craig. And you can uh, find me actually on the Nerd Party Network with you, Matt Rushing, uh, co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars-focused podcast. And uh, coming soon, Trek FM people, Stage 9. It's just around the corner. Michael Schindler and I are planning it. We're coming back strong. Gotta check that out, guys. Gotta check that out. It's going to be a great show. New edition here in the network. So I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys have planned. Of course, you could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. I'm also on Literary Checks with Dan and Bruce these days talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek, interviewing the authors. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I love doing aggressive negotiations with you, you John. That's just a, f- a phenomenal show. Go check that out. Uh, guys, you need to listen to aggressive negotiations because if not, I'd, I'd say you're probably just uh, missing out on some serious uh, Star Wars fun. I so. agree. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. And may the Force be with you. 